Well, good to be with you this morning. Good to see the children hiding the Word of God in their hearts. We're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians. I know you've been studying in 2 Corinthians. So just to make sure you understand that we're not doing this series of studies, six or so studies in 2 Corinthians, because we think the brethren need to be corrected in anything that have been, you know, we want to put that out of our minds. That's a fleshly thought anyway. But in talking to the elders, I've been doing some studies in 2 Corinthians and preaching on it actually recently. And it's a letter I've been, some of the commentaries I purchased, even I purchased, I'm looking at the book that I bought over 10 years ago. Been wanting to do a, a, a serious study of 2 Corinthians, just haven't had time to work it in with other things. And, and finally had opportunity to do that. And so I wanted to, to come back to it. But I'm just going to be looking we are just going to be looking at a portion of it, beginning in chapter 2, verse 14, through chapter 7, verse 4, is a section of the middle part of the letter that is so rich and so vital, and I'm calling it characteristics of new covenant ministry. Characteristics of new covenant ministry. In other words, Paul says in chapter 3, verse 6, that God has made them and us ministers of the new covenant. And he uses this opportunity to describe in this section what new covenant ministers look like. Which is tremendously profitable for us because we can look at this description that he gives here. And compare our own lives and our own testimonies to what he describes here and see how we're matching up. See where we need to maybe tweak a few things in our own lives and in our own growth and walk with the Lord. So I'm going to begin reading in chapter 2, verse 14, down through verse 16. 2, 14 to 16. We'll just start right there this morning. Now thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph, in Christ, and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among two groups of people here, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Two groups. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death. And to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? <laughs> That's right. God, as he'll go on to say, makes us sufficient for these things. That's where we want to begin. And the picture here, and he uses some word pictures in this section that are really Spectacular. I mean, to me, 2 Corinthians unfolds, especially this section of 2 Corinthians, unfolds the heart of the Apostle Paul like none other of his writings, in my view. And maybe you'll come to see that too as we work through this. He is defending, his primary purpose here is defending his apostleship. He'll go on in chapters 10 through 13 
to describe in detail what the problem was. You know, it's amazing. Paul goes and he plants churches in different areas, and Satan didn't waste time to bring in false teachers, false brethren, as he'll call them. In other words, people who profess to be Christians, but they weren't. But they still wanted to come in and stir up the Christians and bring in false teaching. Nothing new under the sun, is there? And to me, what's amazing is that Satan did this even in the lifetime of the apostle. He didn't wait till the apostles were gone. You say, well, why did God permit that? Well, one, there'd be lots of reasons he could permit it, but one reason is so that the apostles could answer it in their lifetime, and we would have these answers in the New Testament recorded for us. He calls them false apostles. It may be good just to turn to chapter 11 and sneak ahead and see this. In chapter 11, he describes these these people that were coming in to Corinth, Paul had planted the church, and now they were attacking Paul's ministry. And Paul's not concerned about himself here. But as an apostle, to attack the integrity of the apostle is to attack the integrity of the gospel message that he was giving. You see the point? If the false teachers could prove that the apostle Paul was discredited as a messenger of God, then his gospel was also discredited, and then the false teacher's message would be the one that people would believe, which was a false message. You with me? That was why Paul is so concerned. He says in verse 13 of chapter 11, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, and what are they doing? They're transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. Why didn't they transform themselves into apostles of Satan? That's who they really were. But if they did that, nobody would follow them, right? There wouldn't be a temptation to the Christians. And so Satan knows he's got a masquerade. He's got a masquerade is putting on a mask, right? He's got to masquerade them as true apostles. And that's what he says happens here. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. You see why we have to be discerning? You see why we have to know our Bibles, the B-I-B-L-E? It's a matter of life and death, beloved. It's not just so we can be religious. It's not just so we can get in a theological argument, maybe with a friend, and win. It's a matter of life and death. It's a matter of where a soul is going to spend eternity. And for Christians, it's a matter of how fruitful our lives will be and whether we'll have anything at the judgment seat of Christ to stand for our life and testimony, right? Now, while you're still in chapter 11, just to point out down in verse 22, here we see, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. So that tells us that these people were probably from Jerusalem, and they were claiming some superior authority as apostles. And they even brought in letters of commendation, ostensibly from the Jerusalem church, to give authority and recognition to who they were. And if you didn't know the truth, you could be deceived by them. 
And if you and I don't know the truth, the word of God, the truth, you think you can't be deceived by the masquerading angel of light himself, Lucifer? Or by his minions who are many in our world and in our generation today? And they're not walking around in a red suit with a tail and a pitchfork. They're charismatic in their personality. They're attractive. They're good speakers, some of them. And they come in, but they are not born again. So they're not real Christians. Discernment. That's so important. Now, the context of this great statement in chapter 2, verse 14, which is a, it's a statement of triumph, isn't it? It's interesting. In, in the Greek, it begins to God. So God's at the beginning of the sentence. The emphasis is on God. To God be the thanks. I wish they'd translate it that way because it helps it even in our English language to make the emphasis right. It's, the emphasis isn't on thanksgiving. The emphasis is on God. And But to God be thanks who always or sometimes always leads us in triumph in Christ. So what he's describing here is a triumphant march, a procession, if you will. And when we see the particular context of this, especially here in chapter 2, it's, it's even more staggering. But let's think about the picture first, the illustration. Now, there are, there are two ways you can think of this triumphant march. The commentaries will describe two different approaches to it. One is Roman and one's Jewish or Old Testament. And we have to decide, what does he mean? Which one does he mean? Well, the, some believe that, that the Roman victory march, you know, when the Caesars had their generals, when they would go out into their wars and they would win over a particular country, they would take back slaves with them, and they always had this triumphant march through the Arch de Triumph and everything there in Rome. And the, the generals were riding their chariots. And those near the front were the people from the town which they were granting Roman citizenship because they probably helped the Romans win. But the people in the back were the ones that were either going to go to slavery or to death and they would be marching in behind and it was a and they had incense flowing and it was just it was a big celebration garlands were being thrown out by the crowds they'd lined it like a victory parade that we do in this country and since he's writing to first century corinthians right it's a roman city a very major port city in the roman world that could be what the Corinthians would be thinking about as he writes this, a triumphant march. But I like to think that what's on the mind of the Apostle Paul is more Old Testament and drawn from the word of God than from the culture, not to say that he didn't draw from the culture in some of his illustrations. And we do see that picture throughout the Old Testament. One of the great ones is in Numbers chapter 9, and you can look at that in your own time, but, but you remember the Shekinah glory when the tabernacle was in the wilderness and how the people, when they were marching through the wilderness, the cloud 
that protected them from the sun during the daytime and then gave them light at night, that was the Shekinah glory, the glory of God, led them out. And if the Shekinah glory did not lift from the tabernacle, they didn't go. They stayed put. So it was a picture of God leading them in triumph, wasn't it? But there's another picture, and that's in Psalm 68. Before you turn to Psalm 68, because I want you to see it with your own eyes. It's a fabulous psalm. But turn over a few pages to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, because this is where I, why I believe he may, Paul, may have in his mind Psalm 68. There's one verse from that very important psalm that Paul quotes in Ephesians, chapter 4. Well, Ephesians, chapter 4, he's describing church ministry what it means to minister in the church, or new covenant ministry, if you will. And in verse 7, he says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, and this is the quotation from Psalm 68, When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. So there's a march, there's a procession that he has, that he's describing here. When the Lord Jesus ascended on high, that's his exaltation, right? It's because of that, that ten days later he sent the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2, right? The day of Pentecost. Peter makes it very clear, is this thing that you see, he tells the people of Jerusalem, Jesus Christ is sending. And it's demonstrating that he really is risen and that he's exalted. That God has exalted him to his right hand and proclaimed him to be Lord and Savior. And so when believers, what Paul's trying to establish here in Ephesians 4 is when we as believers exercise our spiritual gifts, and every believer has a spiritual gift, when we exercise our spiritual gifts and they're gifts of grace according to Christ's gift, right, he says, you realize that we are demonstrating that Jesus Christ is really who he said he is? It really demonstrating he's resurrected and ascended every time we exercise our spiritual gifts. So is it important for us to exercise our spiritual gifts? Yes. Is it important to God? Yes. Is it important to us? It should be. It should be. Because if you love the Lord, and you only love him because he first loved us, you want his name magnified. Amen? That wasn't a very loud amen. Do you want his name magnified? Thank you. That's more like it. Yeah, make sure these people are awake out here. So I'd like to turn back to Psalm 68. I would love to spend the rest of the session on Psalm 68, but I, want, I, I promised you I would be in 2 Corinthians. But it is one of the most powerful psalms to me in this altar. It's a psalm of triumph. Now, Psalm 68 is primarily written with the second coming of Christ in view. And when he ascends the hill of Jerusalem as king of the earth at his second coming, this is what we will be singing, Psalm 68. But the Hebrew people used it for the, especially the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, every king in the line of David, including David, they sang this as a coronation psalm, we're told by the rabbinical 
historical writers that they sang this psalm at the coronation of every king in the line of David. Because they knew that David and his descendants were forerunners of the Messiah who would come and fulfill this psalm. Now the psalm basically divides into two main sections. The first part goes down through verse 19, the second part verse 20 to the end. In the first part, he's dealing with the Lord leading Israel out of bondage in Egypt into the promised land, the land of Canaan, and ultimately to the kingdom, the kingdom of David. Okay? That was what he did to the nation of Israel historically. And of course, it's a picture of triumph, isn't it? It's a picture of triumph for God. It's a picture of deliverance from bondage which is salvation, right? The deliverance from Egypt is a paradigm for our salvation, New Testament salvation, being born again. That's what it, the Bible tells us that. And then they're being taken into the promised land is a picture of our inheritance. That's Ephesians 4, our spiritual gift, taking on our spiritual inheritance and testimony for the Lord. That's what the kingdom was, the testimony for God. And it's in this section, verse 18, you've noticed that Paul quotes one verse out of this psalm to demonstrate and prove the Messiahship of the Lord Jesus and his giving spiritual gifts to his people in the church. Then beginning in verse 20, he moves to the second coming of the Lord Jesus. You have to take my word for it. I know you're probably seeing this psalm for the first time, some of you. But go back and look at it in your own time and compare. It's interesting. Psalm 68 just happens to be right before Psalm 69. Now, all of us know Psalm 69 is a psalm of the cross, of our Lord's humiliation. In fact, it's quoted from the cross. Our Lord quotes it, doesn't he? Portions of it. So Psalm 68 is his exaltation. Psalm 69 is his humiliation. They're put right back to back for a reason by the Spirit of God. To me, that's fascinating. Now, did the writers of the Psalter know that? Probably not. The Holy Spirit did. There are other places where we see that in the Old Testament as well, the humiliation and exaltation. But it's interesting. We Westerners, most of us are Westerners here, you know, we think in a linear, everything, history is, is a linear. The Easterners think in, in a cyclical, cycle kind of a manner, which, of course, the Middle East, where Israel, they were Eastern. They had that Eastern cyclical mindset. And First John and the book of Hebrews, we see that cyclical picture of the reasoning of, of those letters. But Paul would use the Western mindset, the linear building block approach that we are more accustomed to. So in our linear thinking, we say, well, that's, that's chronologi chronologically out of proportion, right? I mean, Psalm 69 should come, his humiliation comes before his exaltation, right? Yeah, that's true historically, but thematically, his exaltation is what's magnified First here, and then his humiliation, which enables the exaltation that's described in Psalm 68. To me, that's fascinating, <laughs> that God would do that. 
In other words, he tells us the end of the story, the success of the story, before the suffering of the story. I like that. I mean, my mom used to read a lot of novels, and they weren't all Christian novels, but they weren't evil novels, but this was before she was saved. But she would always read the end first because she, if, they, if it had a bad ending, she didn't want to read the, the novel. So she'd read the end first, and if the ending was good, some of you may do that, the ending was good, then she'd read the rest of the novel. If it wasn't, that's it. I'm not going to even read it. I don't need, I don't need to be depressed any more than I already am, you know, as an, as an unbeliever, she felt. But here we see the Lord. Just look at verse 7. You want to see a picture of a procession, a victory parade? Oh, God, when you went out before your people. See, the picture that we see in 2 Corinthians 2.14 is Christ leading us in triumph. Amen? It's interesting, and that's where the, the Roman victory parade falls apart, because in the Roman victory parade, the, the generals were in the middle. They weren't out front. And in our victory parades, or when we see, you know, you know our generals, when, they, when you go to war, they're at the back at CENTCOM, right? They're not out there in front fighting. But our Lord Jesus and David also practiced this as a king. He went out at the front of the armies, not in the back. He led them out as a picture of Messiah. He wasn't afraid. He wasn't hiding behind the soldiers and their weaponry. I like that, that picture. That's the Jewish picture, and that's why I think that's important. Oh, God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, Selah, the earth shook, the heavens also dropped rain in the presence of God and Sinai and so forth. You can read it, but these are theophanies that are one on top of another that are expressed at the greatness of God and leading them out. And we read about that in the historical portion in the book of Joshua, the book of Judges, in the conquest. But then you go down to verse 24. Now, this, is, this hasn't happened yet. Verse 24 is talking about when our Lord comes back the second time. They have seen your procession, O God, the procession of my God, my king, into the sanctuary. Jesus is our king for those of us who are believers. He's coming to reign, and he's going to bring his people to reign with him, according to Revelation 1, 6, and 5, 9, and 10, right? And also in chapter 20. The procession of my God, the Lord Jesus, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers went before, the players on instruments followed after. Among them were the maidens playing timbrels. Bless God in the congregation and so forth. It, it, does it excite you? It excites me just to read that. This is what it's going to be like. This is our future, our destiny. If you are a born-again Christian today, we are going to be joining in that great celebration. Don't look so glum. You should be smiling. This is, this is wonderful. This is what we've been saved to, beloved. We don't look like that to the world today, though, do we? No. We don't look like we're victorious today, especially walking around with glum faces all the time. Why would they want your salvation that you're talking about? What, they'd say, oh, is it working for you? 
It doesn't look like it's working for you. You're walking around more glum than I am. I'll just stay with my booze and drugs and, and my football and baseball games and my other things that get me high, right? We need to demonstrate what New Covenant ministry is like. This is a victory. It's a triumph. One of the, it's this, this word that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians Chapter 2, verse 14, threumbuo, it's a great word. It only occurs twice in the New Testament, here and in Colossians 2.15, both of them. And it, it, you can't translate it with one English word. You've got to use four English words, lead, to be led forth out in triumph. That's how that word is translated. So you see the picture? Now, the, the context to me is fascinating too. Because if you read, I'm back in 2 Corinthians now, in chapter 2. If you read verse 13 of 2 Corinthians 2, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I departed from Macedonia. That's verse 13, right before this section. And then if you go down to chapter 7 and verse 5, for indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. You see that really chapter 7 verse 5 could go right after chapter 2 verse 13 and it would flow right in the context, wouldn't it? He went from having no rest to suddenly now having rest. Waiting on Titus, but now he, beginning in chapter 7 verse 5 he explains Titus' arrival and coming. And that he goes on to explain. In between those two is this section we're describing, 2.14 down through 7.4. You with me? So at the verse 13 of chapter 2, he finishes off a, a unit of thought, a thinking. And what he's describing here and what he's excited about and what he's praising the Lord for is the fact that there's been a restoration of a dear brother in the Corinthian assembly. And some speculate, well, we don't know who that is, but why speculate from what's not in the scriptures? Why not look at what we, who's the brother that we have in the scriptures that needed restor restoring? First Corinthians chapter 5, right? The one that they had to excommunicate as an assembly and give over to Satan. And some of them didn't want to do it. They said, this is, this is pretty strong. This is pretty harsh. But Paul exhorts them to do it, and he describes in the first two chapters of 2 Corinthians, he said, you know what? He said, I was going to come see you, but I changed my plans. And the reason I changed my plans is because I wanted to give you time to respond to my letter, 1 Corinthians. Now, that's an example of grace, isn't it? Paul says, I didn't want to come and have to do the discipline myself. I wanted you to do it as an assembly. But I knew you needed time to process it. This was a heavy thing. This was a big thing. And grace gives time to process it, doesn't it? You see the application in our lives today? You're dealing with somebody, maybe in your family, maybe in your community, in your circle of influence that's going through a difficult time? Legalism wants to condemn quickly, right? 
But grace says, give them the truth and give them time to respond to it first. See the difference? You say, how much time? As much time as you feel God is granting them. Why? Because we don't delight in the fact of having to condemn or discipline someone. We delight in people responding to it and taking the initiative and repenting on their own. I didn't hear any amens to that, but I hope you agree with that. I'm all about restoration. Because that's what gives glory to God. That's what gives glory to God. And I want my Lord to be glorified on this earth. See? So you slow this train down a little bit, Paul says. And, of course, the false apostles were saying, well, Paul's not coming because he's afraid to come. He wrote that real strict letter and told him, but he's afraid to come, so he's not coming. He's not coming back. Don't worry about him. Paul says, no, 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 I'm coming. You'll you'll get to that in chapter 13 of this letter. I'm coming, all right. He says, but I'm waiting to give you time. And guess what? As he tells us in chapter 2, he gave them time. And so they disciplined the brother, and the brother responded to the discipline. He repented. Hallelujah. But you know what? Now the Corinthians have a different problem. Now some of the Corinthians don't want to receive him back. And I've seen this happen all too often. You know, raising the bar. We talk about that. You know, it's, the, it's a picture of a high jump, right? Each time they do a jump and you raise the bar. And you, and you say, well, I'm not sure about this repentance. I'm not sure it's genuine. Let's raise the bar a little bit more. Let's wait and see. And then you raise it a little higher and you raise it. And, and so high that they can't get over. That's not what love does. That's what the opposite of love does. And Paul tells them, he says, this brother has repented, you forgive him. And whom you forgive, I forgive. As an apostle and representative of the Lord Jesus, he says, I forgive this brother. And he says, now you make sure you affirm your love for him. That's in chapter 2 in verse 6, 7, and 8. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end, I wrote to you that letter that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. Now, whom you forgive, I also forgive. For we are not ignorant of Satan's devices. Verse 11. You see, there there are two poles here. There are two opposites. There's the There's the opposite that says, well, we're under grace. We can do whatever we want, right? And that's that's an issue we're talking to Joshua about yesterday. That's an issue that the millennials particularly are are struggling with. That's that's going to be a real, I like to think of it as an opportunity. It's going to be a challenge, but it's going to be an opportunity because the millennials really want to go go to that one. But the other pole extreme is legalism that says, ah, no, no. Can't receive them back. No way. There's no way that person could ever get this, could, could ever respond. No, there's no way. I'll never receive them back and I'll never forgive them. Right? Those are the two extremes in our flesh. 
And Paul's saying, you know what? In 1 Corinthians 5, you were going to the one extreme. You were saying, well, we're under grace. And so this brother was living in sin, and they were rejoicing in the fact that he had this liberty, and he has to bring that to their attention. And Paul says, I did that with tears. I didn't, I didn't get excited about that. I wasn't happy about that. I was in tears when I wrote 1 Corinthians, he said. But you responded by doing the right thing. The brother responded with repentance. And now you receive him back and forgive him, lest Satan lead you to the other extreme and say, no, no, there's no way. He can't be forgiven. And that's what leads him into chapter 2, verse 14. To God be thanks who always leads us out in triumph in Christ. Was that a triumph for the Corinthian assembly? Oh, yeah, it was. Was that a triumph for grace? Yeah, it was. Grace means unmerited favor, right? And if you're a Christian here today, you're only a Christian because of God's grace, let me tell you. Not because you deserved it. I hear that sometimes on Christian radio. and just makes my hair stand up on my back. You don't deserve it. Yeah. Romans 5 makes that clear, right? You didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve it. It's all by God's grace. None of us. We'd all have perished a long time ago if not for the grace of God. And these people that want to come out and defend God, these great defenders of God's holiness, most of them don't even know God. Because God is love as well as holiness. And it's unbalanced approach to do that, see? And Paul is having to affirm that with the Corinthians. This was a great, it was a, it's also a great victory for his apostleship and a validation of his apostleship, which means it's a validation of the gospel itself. And therefore, fifthly, it's also an encouragement for you and I. Because, beloved, I don't know about you, but I fail sometimes. Actually, I do know about you. Not concrete specifics, but I know what the Word of God says about you, and you fail too. None of us has reached perfection yet. We all need the mercy of God and the grace of God, don't we? If you said no to that, you're probably not saved. I don't care what you say and what other things you may want to say about yourself. You're not saved. It's the mercy of God that brings us to repentance, according to the Bible. And this is what we're going to follow. Amen? The word of God. So Paul is extolling the greatness of God. God and the majesty of God in a great victory procession. And this is what he had. That's why I think it's got to be Psalm 68. But, but I'll go with, you know, I'm not going to break fellowship with you if you want to say it's the Roman victory parade, whichever. But it's a victory parade. That's the idea. And it's Christ at the front. He clearly says here, and it's a thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph if we're waiting on Christ. Like the Hebrews in the Old Testament wilderness if they went out of that wilderness without the Shekinah glory leading them, if they fell into a wrong place, that's their own fault. Now, I've been out in portions of the Sinai Desert, and it, 
and it's kind of scary because there are deep cuts, deep canyons that are, if you're walking at ground level, all of a sudden there's a crack and there it is, and then it falls several hundred feet. And if you're walking out there at night, there's no railing. You, will, you just walk right off, and that's the end of you. And that's where they were. See, but they had the light at night. The Shekinah glory led them, see? So they could see the dangers. And if you and I wait on the Lord Jesus to lead us as a corporate assembly and as individuals, we can be assured always of triumph. Do you like that? Does that give you hope? Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 4, Therefore we don't lose heart. <laughs> we don't get discouraged. You see, Paul's seen the whole church, the church age, as this great victory triumph with Christ at the head, and it won't be complete until he calls us out to meet him in the air. And we'll have finished our course. Until then, you and I got work to do. But we only can do it by the grace of God. You know, it's interesting, and the mercy of God. That's right, brother. It's interesting. I heard on K-Love, I, hey, I'm trying to relate to what the young people are listening to, too, you know, so I'll listen to K-Love now and then, and I'm thankful for their testimony for the Lord. They even sponsored a car at Daytona this last year, I think it was, trying to get the gospel out. Different means they can use, right? But they had, in a particular state, I won't say where I was, they had this Proverbs 31 woman giving a, a lesson, in, and I like the line she said. He was saying, you know, we sisters, sometimes we, we get so competitive with one another. And, you know, we'll wear certain makeup or do our hair a certain way or wear certain clothing to draw attention to ourselves. And that agitates the other sisters. And we're not thinking about it sometimes, our influence on the others. And we need to be thinking about them. She said, because our ministry is not to compete, but to complete one another. It's not to compete with one another, but to complete one another. Well, that's the ministry of the whole church. We can apply that to brothers and sisters, can't we? If we were in a legalistic, self-righteous religion like the Pharisees had, believe me, I came out of one before I was saved. I reckon I can see it from a mile now these days, and, and I'm glad I'm out of it. It's all about competition and self-promotion. And you've got to put down the other person so that you look good, right? You don't see that you're full of holes like Swiss cheese because we don't, our hearts are so deceptive. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. Desperately wicked. Who can know the depths of our own individual hearts? But we want to condemn everybody else. But usually the thing that we're so condemning in someone else, we are guilty of. I've noticed that. So you listen to these condemnatory people and you look at what they're on and you think, well... This is their struggle, and they're trying to impute it on somebody else, see. I'm so thankful we're not in that competition anymore. I hope you're not in that mindset. That's what the false apostles were doing. We'll see that. Paul will bring that out in this section all the way through. And contra he uses a tremendous series of contrasts to contrast the true and the false. Brother, use that when you were speaking, right? True and the false. So let's, let's put a line in the sand like General Travis did at the Alamo, right? I mean, which side are you going to be on? True or false? And there's no in-between, right? And so we see then 
that we are here to complete one another. Paul will use the phrase twice in chapters 10 through 13. He'll say that my ministry is for your edification, not for your destruction. I'm not here to tear you down. I'm here to build you up. Now, he does warn them in chapter 13, I will come and do some tearing down if they don't respond to some of the things he brings out in 10 to 13. But, But my primary mission is to build up, not to tear down. What about you? What's our primary mission? Is it to love one another and build up or to tear down and criticize? Thank you, brother. It's, but the first thing we tend to do in our flesh is to criticize, isn't it? And to tear down. We don't even realize it sometimes. And so we, that's where the self-examination comes in. We've got to be honest with ourselves before the Lord. Sometimes it takes a lot of energy and concentration and focus to think of one nice thing to say about a brother or sister. But that's what we're supposed to be doing. That's what God would have us do. And that's part of the triumph he's talking about. He goes on to talk about the fragrance of Christ. And what a marvelous truth that is. I was staying, I'll just close it. I was staying up in Chicago with this couple, and the nights were a little cool so they could open the windows, you know. But he said that they had a problem with a skunk coming around, and if you smell the skunk, close the windows. And we got through almost the whole week and a half I was there, and almost the last night I was there, sure enough, at 3 in the morning, and a night that I really needed sleep, I smelled them. So I closed the windows. That made me think about it. It took me about an hour to fall asleep. And I began to think about it. That's an interesting creature God made, that skunk. You know, that he has that, or she has that gland inside that does that. And why did he make that skunk that way? Not very many animals can do that, you know. And I began to think about this verse. The aroma, the sweet fragrance of Christ. That's what God wants to display through you and me. Paul says he diffuses the fragrance of Christ in every place we go. Where you've been this past week, where I've been this past week. They, they, did they get a sense of the beauty of Christ? Or did they get a sense of how great you are, or how great I am, or really how ugly we are compared to God's greatness? We want to be a testimony. The fragrance of Christ, that only comes by spending time with Christ. He'll talk about that in 3.18, that transformation from one glory to another. We'll look at that in this section. I hope you can be with us tonight and during the week. It's a fascinating section of this epistle and so important for godly ministry and fruitfulness in this life. He'll even talk about the next life in this section. He covers everything. But he's really defending his apostleship and the truth of the gospel. So it's amazing the circumstances that God uses to do this. Beloved, thank you for being out with us tonight, this morning. I hope you'll be out with us tonight. But thank you for coming this morning, this afternoon now. We'll go to the Lord and ask his blessing. It's wonderful to know the Lord Jesus as Savior and to walk behind him. Let him lead us out in procession. If you don't know the Lord as Savior, then most of this isn't making sense to you. 
You can't walk behind him if you don't have a relationship with him first. You need to be born again, the Bible tells us. And you do that by recognizing that you're a sinner before a holy God and you can't save yourself. I don't care how many good deeds that you're relying on. You can't save yourself because God's holy and we're sinners. The only way to be saved is through faith in Jesus Christ and his work for you on the cross. So, thank you, brother. You walk, that's in this section too. You walk by faith and not by sight. Paul's going to emphasize that. So, Father, we thank you for this great letter that you inspired the apostle to write. And it was a difficult letter for him to write. There were tears, there was agony, there was suffering. He's going to talk about his victory and that it's by grace that you sustained him. My grace is sufficient for you, you'll tell him as he'll quote to us later in this chapter, in the later chapters of this letter. And Lord, we thank you for this. We need this reminder, especially today. And some of us today may be really hurting with trials and afflictions. Some of them are outside of us. Some of them are agonies we're suffering inside of us because of people we're concerned about or because of our own addictions we may be struggling with. Lord, help us to be people of grace, to be people that follow the Lord and stay close to him be people that love one another and are there for one another and are supportive of one another and not condemnatory in tearing down but building up and encouraging. Lord, that's what drew the early people to the church. That's what's going to draw people to the church today. It'll draw them to the Lord Jesus, to salvation. If there's anyone here that doesn't know Christ as Savior, illuminate their hearts, we pray. May we all agree together, those of us who are saved, that they'll be brought to understanding of who they are and the judgment that's ahead for them if they stay on their present course and that Christ loves them and wants to save them. That he call out on the name of the Lord and so be saved. So we thank you, O Lord. Be with us as we, as we depart. We give you thanks now in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.